All right, everybody. So today on the podcast, we have Dr. Mel Davis. How are you doing, Mel? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? Doing well. Just got home from work. We're uh, coming back from all the shutdowns and everything. Office was closed for a few months, so we're getting back to it. Catching up. <laughs> I'm guessing you weren't terribly affected, right, since most of what you do is online? Yeah, I mean, aside from training jujitsu, my life is yeah, fairly right. changed <laughs> in That's terms good. of work. So that's actually how I reached out to you at first. I'd asked you how long you were doing jujitsu, and we just, I asked a few questions on that. And I figured, like, let's get you on the show. So um, my interest in that peaked actually. I started watching MMA, and then I started following a little bit of Brazilian jujitsu, and then I actually met up with Mike Isertel at the uh, Balance Studio in Philly, oh, and nice. just kind of did like a practice session there. So I have a wrestling background, but no jujitsu background. So that was definitely different, <laughs> for it's sure. It's a good base, though. It's a really good base for jujitsu. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be helpful. I haven't really delved into it much. So that was only that was maybe a couple months before COVID, and then obviously that happened, and then just you know life. It's also it's pretty involved, you know. Like it's not like you just go to the gym for half an hour, and like there's local gyms everywhere. You know, for me, I'm about thirty minutes from Philly. But even for a local place, it's you know. You got you get the gi, and there, there's a lot more right. involved, I would say, than just like a traditional yeah, laundry, workout, would you say? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so before we delve into the questions, can you just give people who aren't familiar with you your background in this space as far as lifting and training? Sure, absolutely. So my actual PhD is in a semi-unrelated field, which is neurobiology and behavior. Um, it's applicable, I guess, in terms of learning and memory and behavior aspects of diet and fitness. And then I really just, as a scientist who was also an athlete doing jiu-jitsu for the last 11 or 12 years, I got really interested in what the science had to say about, you know, how can I be better at my sport? How can I more safely and effectively lose weight for my weight class and things like that? So I sort of began about 10 years ago a hobby of looking into the science of fitness. And I also, that's about when I met Dr. Mike. And he was starting to study that as well, but he was back in undergrad then. So he mm. and I would talk about it a lot. And I just sort of evolved to um, ended up working for RP, which sort of married my two favorite things, which were sport and science. So that's how I got where I am. That's awesome. Yeah. And obviously, I think in the community now, Renaissance Periodization has gotten a pretty big name. So mm. it's great that you're able to kind of get in there and, and know Mike and kind of grow with the team. So yeah. at this point, are you doing largely just online training? Do you have, because I know other people with Renaissance Periodization, not everybody's just doing training. Some people have more behind the scenes work or the research or writing. Yeah. Yeah, so I do, I, I'd say probably 70% of my work now is writing, editing, product development kind of stuff at RP. And then I still have, I'm keeping a lot of my long-term clients who I love and it's been so fulfilling to watch them grow for so long. I can't let them go, even though eventually right. I might want to Right. Move into only um, the non-client work just because time constraints. Sure. Yeah, that was actually something I made a post on recently is that uh, at least for the time being, I'm not taking on any more clients because, you know, I was training people before I did the podcast. But then obviously, you know, the more well-known you become, the more people are inquiring right. about your services. And I, I definitely find that there are some people who they take on more than not even that they can, but that they should um, yeah. To me, yeah. it's like there's a level where, you know, I usually tell people, like, you can communicate with me as much as you want. Um, I, like, I like to have actual conversations with these people and get to know mm -hmm. them. And 
you know, I don't want to put a certain number on it because, you know, people are going to be different in terms of how much they can handle. But there is a number for every person where it's like, okay, the quality is now going down. Absolutely. And it's not just yeah. detracting from what you can offer the clients, but as you mentioned, it detracts from your own life and, and what you can do elsewhere. So for me, um, it's certainly not, you know, my primary income at all. And I, I work as a dentist 45 hours a week. So there's only a certain amount of time after that, <laughs> the podcast working out that I even want to be training clients. And I think if you start doing too much, it you either subconsciously or consciously almost start to like have a little disdain for it. And you just kind of start phoning right. it in and all you that. You don't want to develop resentment and you want your clients, you want your clients to contact you and you to know who they are and you know right. what their background is instead of having to look it up and not actually knowing them. So I think that's super important. I totally agree. Totally. So as far as the jujitsu, how much of that, I mean, right now, obviously probably pretty minimal, um, but let's say pre quarantine and COVID and all that, how much of that were you doing and how did that tie in with your lifting goals? Yeah. So, um, I actually, COVID was timed pretty well. Uh, my husband and I were moving from California to Montana and I had planned to sort of tame my, uh, jujitsu competition because there was a period where I was competing once a month and mm. even towards the end there it was, you know, every other month or so. So it's a lot of training, a lot of competition. So I had planned yeah. to ramp things down anyway. Um, but prior to ramping things down, I was training one to three times a day, six days a week. Oh, that impacts your, any lifting plans you might have, uh, incredibly. So I, I basically, tried to do almost exclusively just maintenance volume lifting because I was fairly strong and lean enough for my weight class. Right. Um, if I did a cut, I would, you know, stop and do hypertrophy, but doing hypertrophy while training jujitsu was rough on both hypertrophy oh, and sure. jujitsu. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. So, and, and when you said one to three sessions, how long would a session typically be? Uh, hour to hour and a half. That's about what I figured. And that's like, I mean, that's one of the biggest difference I think between people who take lifting seriously versus other sports. So mm -hmm. there's a guy, um, his name's Eric Lee Salazar. I've had him on the podcast, excuse me. And, uh, he was saying how he thinks bodybuilding is the easiest sport relative to other sports. And I kind of had mm -hmm. it back and forth with him where I said, I think if you're just talking about lifting, like casual lifting compared to other sports, yes, I definitely disagreed yeah. when you're talking about like competing, um, you know, I know Navy yeah. SEALs who have said that their competition was the hardest thing they've ever done. Um, I think this particular <laughs> individual probably gets lean pretty easily. So it's a little different mm -hmm. for him. But for most people, I mean, the actual like getting to contest lean can be an extremely just all encompassing experience uh, can be very difficult. But if we're talking about such a year round job, too, if you're yeah. a competitive bodybuilder, you don't there's no time maybe two weeks per year where you're just free to do what you want, go on a vacation, not lift and not right. watch what you're eating. So, right. And as somebody who, you know, was pre-athletic most of his life, I, I definitely disagreed with him pretty strongly, but if, <laughs> if we're talking about um, just lifting in general, most people can get very good results with three, yeah. four, maybe five workouts a week. And that is in contrast to a lot of sports where if you want to be very good at most sports, like, you know, you're, you're doing six to sounds like almost like 12 plus hours per yeah. week of jujitsu and to develop that skill and really hone that skill. And that's why I ask about Brazilian jujitsu, but that really also applies to people who have other sporting goals as well, where you definitely can't optimize both in most situations. And yeah. you are going to have to kind of have one on maintenance usually 
while you're developing the skills of the other. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. I'm sure in the last 10 years I had spent as much um, effort towards lifting as I did towards jujitsu, I'd be a much buffer, much leaner human being right now. <laughs> right. I can kill people, so it's okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, so speaking of weight, I remember watching, there was a video of uh, Ronda Rousey, so a lot of people know her as kind of like the former female face of MMA, and uh, mm -hmm. I people, this is just kind of like a ridiculous question that has no clear answer, but I think people would see these like women fighters and some people would think like, you know, macho, like what could they, you know, what could this like small girl do? And then right. they have these demonstrations of everything. So in your experience, if, if you have like a big guy who's new coming to the gym, I'm just curious how easy or difficult is it for you to, let's say, go around or something with somebody who's significantly bigger and stronger than you physically? Yeah. So there's definitely a limit um, to how much technique makes up for size. So like take Dr. Mike, for example, he's got about a hundred pounds on me and those yeah. hundred pounds are exclusively muscle. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of technique that you have that you can get around, you know, like a hundred pounds of extra muscle. Sure. Um, so he would be a really difficult role. But he's also a purple belt. So yeah, yeah. True. Even as a white belt though, like, um, purple belt, obviously more difficult, but even as a white belt, someone who has that much strength and size on you, it's, you know, if I go to the kid's class and, and fight a 12 year old, it doesn't matter how good they are. I'm going to win, you know? Yeah. So on the other hand, if someone comes in and they're say 50 pounds larger than me, completely unexperienced, and maybe it's not 50 pounds of muscle, then I'll have no trouble with that person. Yeah. So it, yeah, it just depends. Yeah. No, I think I, I'm glad you made that caveat because it's funny as somebody who wrestled, I would notice that as well where, you know, my brother and I, I think I might have told this story on the podcast before, but my brother and I, we were probably similarly skilled. But once I started working out and I got uh -huh. significantly bigger, stronger than him, I mean, it was quite easy <laughs> for me to beat him yeah. at that point. So strength and like, I hate when people say like size doesn't matter. Size obviously matters, which it is why there's matters. weight classes. Exactly. Um, but alternatively, if somebody has, as you said, no experience, I mean, when I would wrestle at like 125 pounds, obviously a lot younger, I mean, I could literally like, you know, take my friends who are 200 pounds because yeah. somebody who just has no like coordination and no background, it's and just, they don't know what's coming. Yeah. How, when the joint's going to be locked or yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> technique makes a big difference for a while, but once someone bigger starts developing a little bit of technique, the gap starts closing. Totally. Totally. So, um, I had recently looked on your Instagram and I saw you talking about diet breaks and maintenance periods. And um, I am pretty much in like very deep into a cut right now. I actually only have about two days left. Uh, Ooh, nice. Very much feeling it, very lethargic, super low calories, much lower than I'd ever even recommend. I just, uh -huh. I'm kind of experimenting right now to see what happens. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, it's, it sucks. <laughs> but, uh, but I, something I did differently with this diet compared to previous is I had always had some type of refeed involved. Usually it would be like a once a week refeed. Maybe it would be a carb cycling approach. Um, but this time, while I had the occasional refeed, I did much more with actual diet breaks. So um, either at minimum three days, uh, at most I did actually a three-week diet break where I just ate at maintenance. And I found pros and cons to that compared to just like a large refeed. Sure. But I wanted to hear your experience on incorporating refeeds versus diet breaks. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it it depends very much on the person. Um, I think there's kind of this uh, almost a, U, a W curve 
where someone who is very new to dieting should have a little bit shorter diet and a little bit longer diet break, whereas the more experienced person might be able to push a diet longer, might be able to handle having a refeed day and not, you know, spiraling out of control for the following week. Right. And then the super advanced might be able to do the sort of staggered, I don't know if you've read uh, Jackson Pios's paper, came out a while back where they did, uh, it was basically two weeks of diet, two weeks off. And yeah, right. that was really cool to me because then the diet never actually impacted muscle mass, even on a lower volume training regimen. Um, that's brutally frustrating for most people who are trying to lose weight to lose, you know, five pounds in two weeks, gain yeah. two back during the following two and do it like that. But if you are someone who can handle that sort of psychological roller coaster, that's a really awesome way to go because you don't have to worry about muscle loss and you never actually have to drop calories lower than the, the first cut on the first two weeks. Right. So I think um, it, that was sort of a convoluted answer to your question, but I think there's basically a lot of ways to skin that cat and they can be very individualized to the person's sort of per, uh, place in their fitness journey and their preferences. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's, I would agree with that. I think the diet break literature is interesting because it really does seem to help maintenance of muscle. I think they, physiologically, it makes sense to me that there's just going to be more horm like positive hormonal changes and adaptations when you have an extended period of time, like, you know, three to seven days compared to just mm -hmm. one day or one really big meal. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I think mentally, this is kind of a somewhat different topic, but mentally just being able to trust the process is part of it. Um, mm -hmm. Because if you see these fluctuations, like obviously if you're going into a maintenance period, you're not necessarily gaining, I mean, you shouldn't be gaining really any fat back, but... Right you're still going to see the scale weight go up due to food bulk and, and water and everything. And um, this is actually, so I'll just share my experience right now. My experiment that I'm doing right now, which uh, again, would not recommend for anybody listening, is I, I actually did two weeks at 1,000 calories. Now I'm at, I am 185 pounds. That's fairly active right there. <laughs> yeah, so I've done like protein sparing modified fast before, but even then they tend to allow like unlimited vegetables and stuff, which ultimately right. still puts me like 15, 1600. Um, yeah. So this is absurdly low. And I actually have since doing that gained about two pounds. Now, anybody <laughs> hearing that, especially as a coach, you know, your alarm is probably going to go off and say, you're mistracking, you're not counting your cheats or something like that, which I totally understand because that's what I would say as well to somebody. <laughs> My response is just that, you know, having done this for 15 years and tracking literally every, like a packet of Splenda gets tracked. Right. You um, know. Yeah. And, and so it's not, I tell people, you know, this isn't some magic that's happening. I'm obviously in a huge deficit, but historically I've always held a lot of water and the more aggressively I diet, the more I do. So wow. it seems insane. And unfortunately, this is one of the, the problems if you don't understand calorie balance is you, I mean, I would literally be believing, wow, I'm eating a thousand calories and not losing weight. Right. But, and I can still see it in certain ways. I can see vascularity pop out. I am taking calipers and those in, in areas of my body that wouldn't hold as much water. Those are still right. going down. Um, but it's, it's truly amazing because I, I really, I've never done it before and I never would have expected that. But the psychology of it is so huge that you know, to, to suffer for two or three weeks like that and not see results is very hard. And so yeah, going yeah. back to diet breaks, there might be some people who, who momentum is a big thing and Absolutely. they yeah. might think, man, if I'm done for two weeks, they're just going to go off the rails. And I even know some people who don't do any sort of refeed, which 
I think the literature and anecdote tend to back up that refeeds and maintenance periods have benefits, but I'm open to the fact that there are some people who maybe just any break in their dieting progress throws them off. I don't know if you have anybody who is like that personally. Right. Yeah. I think, I think overall, you're right. The literature tends to support diet breaks and being an, an important factor. There has been some, um, in obese populations, there has been some data suggesting that longer, uh, more moderate diet or what was it? No, more severe yeah. diets, rather shorter, severe diets rather than longer, moderate diets led to more weight loss, which I guess sort of suggests that there's a diet break there at the end, but it's still sort of counterintuitive when your mindset is, you know, moderate diet, diet break. Um, easy I've definitely seen that. Yeah, I've definitely seen that in obese populations as well. I think to tell somebody who has a ton of body fat, like, hey, we're going to try to lose one pound a week, and they have literally like 100 pounds to lose, that itself can be very demotivating. Yeah, I also don't think it's necessary. I mean, there's no reason you need to go that slow for most people who have that much weight to lose, in my opinion. Right. The, the health benefits of losing the fat so far outweigh any lean muscle mass loss that they might experience. That, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so how do you personally like to, I mean, again, I know we said it's going to depend on the individual, but you kind of have like a little chart there in terms of maintenance and how long somebody should be at maintenance if they've, you know, depending on how aggressively they've dieted, how they're feeling, if they've previously gained a lot of weight back, how do you kind of incorporate those factors? Yeah. So I, the population that I tend to work with often has done sort of either many, many previous diets or they've done yo-yo dieting or they've just sort of done dieting with no break or little break. And I think for people who have gone through that process, doing uh, a nice long maintenance with a slow calorie increase is really beneficial because they tend to have gotten themselves in sort of a position where their metabolism and hormones and, you know, basically everything that's impacted by dieting is in a state of ill recovery, you know, and has been for a while. So I think in those populations, the longer, the longer maintenance periods are really beneficial. Um, so most of what I program looks more like that. Every once in a while, I'll get someone who really hasn't dieted a bunch. They have a very healthy mindset. They do a diet and, you know, they can take a maybe four week break and start another diet and there's no problem. Their calories get ramped back up really quickly over the short break and they're totally fine to start again. So that's sort of what I use as a measuring stick for should we keep stay on the break or should we start another diet? Like, do we yeah. have your calories up to a reasonable amount and your weight steady? Yeah, I think that's a good general guideline. So how do you deal with the clients? Because I actually, I literally just dealt with this today with a client. And unfortunately, I mean, as a coach, like, there's only, I can give my opinion, uh, but ultimately it's their body. And I tell them, look, like if you really <laughs> want to do this thing that I don't recommend, I'll do my best to, I mean, it's like if I have a patient, a patient says, well, I want to do this. I can say, well, this is what I recommend, <laughs> but I can only you do so much. You don't need vampire things. Right, right. And, and, you know, I can only do so much. And whatever you choose, I will make that outcome as best as possible, you know, right. assuming that it's not something that I actually think is like detrimental and actually really harmful, in which case I would maybe remove right. myself. Yeah. Um, so this particular client was saying, you know, we had our consultation only a couple of weeks ago and they were very overcutting and they said they wanted to bulk up as much as possible. Um, and then they had decided now, you know, only a couple of weeks later that they're too fat, that they're uncomfortable with how fat they are and they want to do another cut. 
Now, you know, and I'm sure that person is listening now, and that's fine because I would tell them, as I said earlier today, that there's always there's going to be a justification, and a lot of times we will justify whatever decision we want and we'll try to logic it and we'll say this makes sense because of this 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 but i'm sure you've seen it plenty where you have somebody who you you don't think has the best mindset but they're going to want to backwards rationalize that decision so how do you personally handle the clients who you know go back and forth quite a bit in terms of what they want and maybe one day they're saying that they're too fat another day they want to say they're as big as possible because honestly i mean that's that's not even remotely uncommon in this field you know i think it's probably more common than it is not common yeah yeah so one of the first things i try to do is discuss like uh, a final outcome goal for them and then talk about the various processes to get there so say you have a woman who wants to be more muscular but she's very fat phobic Mm -hmm. you can sort of uh from the very start, explain to her, like, there's going to be periods where you're going to be a little chubbier than you're probably comfortable with, but this is a price that you pay for this increased muscularity. As an alternative, we can do much shorter, like, bulk or mass sessions where you gain less fat, but your muscle gain is going to be a lot slower. So let's talk about, like, where the trade-off is comfortable for you. Like, what is the the highest body fat percentage that you'd be comfortable staying at for a couple months and then work back from there and make sure they know, you know, what the limitations they're imposing on themselves because of their preferences are and let them make, make the trade off that fits and then just try to help them stick to it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's very important to look towards those long-term goals because it's, I mean, you know, there's going to be times, unless you're pretty genetically blessed, there are going to be times where if you are really trying to optimize your progress towards your goals as a physique athlete, that you're not going to look great. You know, yeah. um, I, I think if you were always trying to look your best, you know, you always had something coming up in two weeks, you're not going to make optimal progress. I mean, for me, you know, I kind of grew up as a fat kid and I did accept <laughs> that at some point I was 18 to 20% body fat. Now, I don't know if that's necessary for everybody but for me when I try to stay leaner I just didn't make the same progress and, and I know a lot of people who say the same thing and it, it sucks I'd love to look like an Instagram model all the time but um, <laughs> it's just for me and I think a lot of people probably not the reality especially if, if you're a natural athlete yeah a hundred percent yeah that's another thing I try to bring up with a lot of clients is you know you're following all these fitspo models on Instagram they don't take pictures in their bulking pics and post those, you know, they post them right before their contest. They take a hundred pics and they post those all year. So don't, don't take those snapshots as an eternity. They didn't get that big and that buff by ever, ever gaining any fat. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, they don't realize what you just said that a lot of people, I mean, I know I have a couple of people I talk to regularly and they're still posting pictures from like, you know, five, six months ago. And there's something wrong with that, but like, yeah, it's not like they're necessarily going to say like, Hey, here's the timestamp of when I took this, they're just posting a picture, which is fine. Right. But most people, I just think they just tend to assume that when the picture is posted, Oh, that must be recent. And that's very much often not the like case. That. Yeah. 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 It's too bad. It would be really cool to find some people who sort of post the whole painful process uh, yeah. online, more, but it's hard to do that. I understand. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the nice things that, because I don't have a ton of skin in this game in terms of like, you know, my entire, all of like my fitness stuff. I love it. I'm passionate about it. But if my podcast and coaching just went away tomorrow, like that doesn't affect my income really and stuff like that. And so I can pretty openly talk about, you know, I I feel like 
inevitably, as honest as you try to be, if your entire livelihood depends on this, you, at times, not everybody, but at times you kind of have to sell yourself, right? Like not like, in, I don't mean like in a, this negative way, but like you yeah, have to no, promote totally what you're doing. You know, and, and I would even say that about my, in my profession, you know, there's going to be things that I'm going to talk up and it's going to sound really positive and like, it, it's just, it's going to happen at times, like I said, consciously or subconsciously. And because I don't really have that with the fitness scene, I feel like I could be pretty open about like, this stuff sucks or this stuff right. is actually <laughs> um, So I'm pretty open about the fact that like, yeah, I'm doing this experiment right now and it sucks. And like, for me to get really <laughs> lean, it's, you know, I don't need to do this extreme to get lean, but it always sucks for me. Like it just always yeah. does. Like, you know, I've died it down <laughs> 12 times probably at this point. It, there, it, there is a suckiness to it. And yeah. like you said, like when I bulk up, it's not always pretty. And, or right now, because I've been doing this for 15 years, I'm deciding to maintain. And yeah, I am going to maybe look good year round now, but because of that, I'm not going to make as much progress, et cetera. Um, right. And I think it is important to have some of those voices that can be really blunt because that's kind of my, my goal in here, my goal is not to like have the most entertaining channel or anything like that. It's, you know, things that I wish were told to me when I was younger, because back when I was getting into this, it was like the forums were really big and a lot of like the really big bro science. And there's so many things I look back and I'm like, man, like it could have been way less stressful if this kind of stuff was out there, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. I think. Go ahead. Uh, I think another sort of important thing to stress when you're dealing with someone who's afraid to gain fat is just the, the transformative process of letting go of your vanity for a little bit and sort of focusing on the other aspects of yourself that are great, like enjoying your life, eating more food, lifting really heavy weights, you know, whatever it is during the period where you're a little bit heavier and you can't rely on that as sort of a source of self-worth. So I think it can be really um, transformative and, and helpful in the long term. It's a good um, good exercise that people should sort of get that aspect out of as they suffer through it, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, kind of going back to, I guess, maybe obsessive tendencies, you know, you, I think, do you have a birthday recently? I did, yeah. Okay, and, and you had mentioned that you had eaten some junk food, but you didn't work out prior to, right? Because like, and you kind of talked about. Well, maybe I'll let you, let you kind of explain that first, and then I'll get into it. So, kind of, what was the point of that post saying that, like, you know, you didn't work out the day before you had yeah. some junk? Yeah. So um, my birthday fell on a Sunday, and I went and I ate six donuts, and I had Mexican food and a few drinks, and it was glorious until I was sick and had to lay on the couch. <laughs> Um, but <laughs> I, I just indulged in all the food I enjoyed and a lot of people would, you know, say like, oh, I better work out. I ate all this food and mm -hmm. sort of create this trade-off where food has to be paid for with exercise and exercise is a, a payment and food is, you know, costs something. And I think that dynamic is really bad. I, I didn't work out because Sunday's my rest day and I have a program and it has a progression and I don't work out on Sundays. So I wasn't going to alter my training and impact my progression of my training or feel like guilt for eating that food and like I had to pay for it with an exercise fee. So it just like uh, an example of how to sort of frame things in a more psychologically healthy manner, like exercise is for your health and looking better. Food is for eating. They don't necessarily always have to interact or impact each other. I mean, in realistically, they impact each other, but you don't have to 
pay for. Yeah, totally. I think a couple points on that. I mean, for one, I think people really get a little too obsessive when they think that, like, you know, they're going to do this optimum workout that's going to allow them to, you know, sensitize the muscle and all their all the cheat is going to go towards glycogen replenishment and muscle growth. And I'm not (laughs) even saying that the principle is wrong. I'm sure. I mean, yeah, when you work out, you know, you will be more sensitized to store glycogen and all of that. For one, I, I really and again, maybe I'm too on the other side of this, but I think a lot of these short term changes just don't really matter. Um, maybe if you're talking about over the course of years, but I, I just to think. So my example was when every Christmas um, I would get up at like six in the morning, like I'm talking from when I was like a kid, like, <laughs> like, like a high school kid. And I would do this big full body workout because I knew I was going to be eating all day. And right. I wanted to optimize it. And the reality is, like, how much muscle could I have gained in that one day? I mean, it's so yeah. incredibly negligible. Now, I actually still do that on Christmas and Thanksgiving, but that's because I love to do it. It's not because yeah. I feel like I need to do it. There's no guilt associated. One of my favorite things is just getting up early, having some coffee, having a great workout, yeah. and then eating a lot of food. But again, you this is where you need to know yourself or your clients. Because if somebody, you know, if I have a client who has maybe a, history of an eating disorder, I'm going to approach that differently than somebody who has no food relationship issues. Okay. So that's, that's really important too. And for me, I have previously had some minor issues, nothing like serious, but I'm cognizant enough to know myself that I can make these decisions. Um, but also I'm glad you kind of said that, like, you know, you had six donuts and this other food. Um, there's certain topics here where I, I feel like I'm pretty accurate on this is actually one where i'd be open to somebody saying no you're actually wrong this isn't a good behavior but i to some degree do think that food can be fun and again this is where it really depends on the person because i i think you have to watch out for people with bad relationships with food but um one example was actually on my birthday about two two or three years ago now um a patient of mine brought a dozen donuts (laughs) and i'm sure (laughs) they were supposed to be shared but I did not share them. <laughs> I actually left, this was when I was in residency, I left a little early, and I'm like a big Marvel fan, like the movies, oh. and I went to go see Infinity War, and I ate like eight of those donuts watching this movie, <laughs> and it was a great day. Like, it was awesome. Yeah. And I didn't then like feel like, oh my God, I was so guilty. I didn't then use the rest of the day to continue cheating. It was just that experience, and yeah. I'm not saying everybody is there. Some people can't do that and, and stay on the path, but it sounds like you were able to just find... I was able to, and I think to some degree, people have shifted from a food obsession to food is only fuel and you use it to fuel your body and there's no enjoyment in food. And it's like, man, like if you, food is a, (laughs) right. Yeah. I mean, food is a big part of our culture and enjoyment. So uh, I'm glad it, it sounds like you have a similar perspective that I do there. Yeah, completely. And as a side note on Thanksgiving, I actually usually do go do a full body workout, but that's because generally I have like a rest week during that holiday because I always travel to see family. So it'll be like, I'm not in the middle of any kind of progression or training. So I just do something, you know, and whatever small amount of muscle, there's not probably much gained at all, but because of the lack of sort of progression in the overload, but it's probably a fraction. It's probably something. I would just, it don't interrupt your current training to do that was sort of the, the message of my post. But yeah, I completely agree. I think that there is a happy medium between the extreme of, you know, like broccoli and chicken at all times right. and 
eating whatever you want and not being concerned with your health. There's definitely a time and a place to enjoy food and all of the the emotion and culture and things that are tied to it. And being able to do something like that, go eat eight donuts and watch a Marvel movie. Like we should all have a deep indulgence every once in a while. You know, you shouldn't be indulging in everything every day. You'd never get anything done. You wouldn't be productive. But every once in a while, it's good to be like, you know, sit in the hot tub, drink champagne and eat chocolate, like have right. that sort of indulgent experience and then move on. Yeah. And, and I think for those of us who take this endeavor seriously, there is something to be said for an appreciation for those moments, even more so because we're pretty yeah. strict, you know, like for me, this thousand calorie experiment, it's like, so, you know, we're going out to a restaurant for the first time actually since like February because everything was closed. Uh-huh. So the Saturday will be the first time. And I'm sure that food is going to be like a 12 out of 10 enjoyment <laughs> because, <Right. laughs> you know, after everything. And I'm fine with that. But that that food might be, let's say, like an 8 out of 10 normally. And there is something to be said for when you have this ascetic lifestyle and you you almost like hold back from these indulgences. When you are able to do them in an appropriate way, there's a greater appreciation for it, whether that's, you know, a really high volume phase, that deload just feels amazing or if it's, you know, an intense diet, I think anything when you have this sacrifice, there is probably some analogy for jujitsu, I'm sure. But when you can then, it, it gives you more of an appreciation for things that might otherwise just seem normal to somebody who's always indulging. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that something interesting that comes through the process of doing that sort of fitness thing, you know, dieting, training, etc., is that you start to recognize too that like, okay, there's these periods in life when this food is okay. And there's periods in life where I have to abstain from it. It's not that food is good or food is bad. There's just a time and a place. And I think that's a really sort of liberating thing to happen because if you don't ever realize that you're always in this position where, you know, donuts or junk food are bad and they're never good. So it's always a guilt thing. It's always a a stressor to worry about eating them. Whereas if you, you know how to lose weight and you know there are times when you can maintain calories and have some of these indiscretions and it won't make a big impact. It, it frees you to enjoy so much more of life and there's less stress in the eating and less stress in the dieting. Totally, totally. So obviously a, a significant message of my podcast and my videos is this kind of balance in life and that you can still make a lot of progress without being super neurotic. But are there areas for either yourself or your clients where you actually do push things to the extreme where you do have people obsess over, I don't want to say obsess, but if, you know, look at these very minor details and you actually believe that it does make a difference. Any examples you have for that? Um, you know, I would say for most people, unless you're trying to compete in bodybuilding or you're trying to compete in some weight class sport where you're looking to be the best in the world or something like that. In those cases, it might behoove you to be a little more detail-oriented. But I'd say on the whole, having a little bit of psychological balance probably gives you the bandwidth to train harder and better. And the difference in terms of physique development or strength development or sport development, whatever it is, is going to be so insignificant compared to the morale boost of not being 100% strict all the time. I would guess that it's very rare that absolute adherence to tiny details is actually beneficial on the on the whole. Yeah. That would be my guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would tend to agree with that. That's probably the only, you know, arguments I have with some people in the fitness industry, at least in like obviously there's there's plenty I disagree with in the fitness industry, but even like among the evidence based, 
I do still find some people, you know, I, I always think it's a little disingenuous when people will say, well, you know, this doesn't matter. But if you take this, if you want to be a serious bodybuilder or you really want the best results, you should do this. And there are these things that kind of like we talked about where I don't even know if that one to two percent difference. I mean, first of all, I again, I find it kind of disingenuous when they say, oh, if you're a competitor, that one to two percent really matters. I, in, in certain instances, yes. Like if you're talking about a sprinter and a one percent improvement in time, actually could. But if you're talking about like a bodybuilder, a one percent increase in muscle is is literally. Probably I, not. I, yeah, I don't think yeah. anybody like if you actually think of the weight of your muscle mass and how much. Okay, so you gain five pounds of muscle over a couple of years at an advanced level. One percent more than that is really not making any difference, in my opinion. Right. Um, but then also, I think. And it, that one percent, even if it did make a difference, might be pushed out by someone else's better, you know, anthropometry or better vascularity, or they chose a better, you know, tanning and oil combination. Right. Right. Like, yeah, it's tough. Um, and I, I don't ever want my message to be like, people don't try. Like I still try (laughs) every time I go in the gym, I try to beat what I did. You know, I just, I really think it's important. It it sounds like we're pretty much on the same page here that if if you have these key principles down, you're going to make almost all your progress and to your point you made earlier the you know difference in your morale and your mentality going forward i could make the argument that you'd make better progress because you found a way to incorporate right. it into your life and not have it just be like a phase where i'm so serious but then oh look at that because of that you burnt out and now you know you're just not progressing anymore or you quit you know in, in extreme cases yeah yeah i think that's very often the case people who adopt an overly strict, overly detail-oriented, sort of oppressive uh, outlook for these pursuits. They might go well for a while, but most people, you know, motivation only lasts so long and like you can create habits to support all of these detail-oriented plans, but eventually something's going to slide because yeah. it's it's a stressful way to live. Totally. So I guess just kind of rounding out here, um, you mentioned that you you know, you do a lot of writing for RP. Uh, do you look into research side of things or is it more writing based on your experience? Yeah, research. So I'm actually, I am like a little more than halfway through writing a book on behavior modification or habit okay. change. And I think at this point I've read almost 300 articles over the last two years for that book. Wow. So I'm very, very interested in the research for sure. Um, most of what I write is at least based on some amount of research that I've read, if not as in-depth as the book. That's awesome. Yeah, I find that, so I had at one point (laughs) had the idea of writing a book and I just, I seriously have so much respect for people who can do that because, so mine, I was thinking like, I'm really interested in health and longevity and it was just like to find all of the information that was out there was just so all-encompassing and not to mention that it's constantly updated i mean if you look at like brad schoenfeld's (laughs) recent book on hypertrophy the second the second one was done he's already working on the third one and there's just constantly new stuff going out and it's like i would just feel and that's why it's nice with the podcast because like when stuff comes out i can talk about it and then when another thing comes out i can talk about it but for a book i mean i'm sure you've experienced like there's just new stuff all the time and you have to stay super up to date Yeah, I think some things there's been enough research that you can make a reasonable, you know, fundamental statement about them and then say the details are still up in the air pending (laughs) the coming research. Yeah. But yeah, it's... it's, 
Go ahead. It's been a challenge. When I started, I a couple of years ago, it was just I'd read some papers and you know take some notes, and I had like these ten word documents with like random notes, and they were totally yeah. unorganized. And I I forced myself into a structure, and uh, I have like a spreadsheet of the chapters and the ideas and what I'm going to add to each day and what research I want to delve into and solidify my understanding. And I sort of build little research trees that help me frame, you know, the whole of the literature on a particular topic. And then once I get to that point, it's pretty easy to sit down and write the chapter because I feel like I have a good grasp of what we know. So that structure has helped me a ton. Okay, makes sense. So what would you say, if, if anything, is there a particular topic or thing you found in the research that you're most excited about as far as like, you know, upcoming research showings, anything like that. That makes sense. Yeah, I guess it wouldn't even be sort of upcoming research. Something that I've found incredibly interesting as I've been reading for that book is the the sort of difference between how a beginner and how someone who's a little more involved in the particular arena approach a goal. So in the context of fitness, an example might be someone like you or I, how we would approach a a weight loss goal or a particular fitness related goal versus how someone brand new would approach it. Mm. And it seems like um, for the more experienced person, if the goal is more specific, more complex and more challenging, they're actually more likely to succeed. Whereas the opposite is true for a beginner. And in the case of beginners, not only should their goals not be quite as specific, they should focus more on a learning and strategy goals, like developing strategies for how they'll meal prep before they ever start to lose weight, developing, you know, learning about macros, developing plans to manage people, inviting them to dinner and things like this before they even start to lose weight. And very often they'll just lose weight from making those plans and it, are less likely to lose weight if they made a specific plan for weight loss. So that to me was kind of counterintuitive and really, really interesting. Yeah, no, that is really interesting. That's cool. So this book, you said you're about halfway done. So maybe a little while before we see it come out. I, it's slated for end of the year. So. Oh, okay. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So, all right, Mel, well, it was great talking to you tonight. Where can people find more of your stuff? Um, so I'm on Instagram as regressive underload and there's an underscore between those two words. That is seriously um, like the best name. That is such a clever <laughs> give you props for that. I have to give give credit to Ryan Short. I think he's the one who said it first and I was like, oh, I'm keeping that. <laughs> um, and also just on the RP website, I have a bunch of articles there and um, there'll be information about the book on there too when it comes out. Perfect. And I'll have links to all that below in the show notes. Okay. Awesome. Thank you.